This is part 2 of my review of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, if you haven't read part 1 then I recommend you do. I've linked it here. https colon slash slash anonymousautistic.wordpress.com slash 2021 slash 09 slash 12 slash Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated slash. Series 2 picks up a few months after the events of Series 1, judging by Fred's beard. Mayor Jones is in prison and I am still reeling from that reveal. It subverts everything Scooby-Doo has ever done, the mystery becomes properly personal now. It marks a huge shift in narrative, the gang have real drive to find out what is going on with the planispheric disc and that is made clear in Series 2 as the focus shifts much more to the overarching narrative with almost every episode adding to it as opposed to only 6 or 7 of the previous series episodes contributing anything useful. This shift is signposted clearly and makes actual sense it feels like this was the plan and it doesn't feel dragged out, or rushed. So, let's get into the series. Spoilers ahead. 2.1, The Night the Clown Cried is a great opening episode. It showcases how lost the town is without the gang, Sheriff Stone is completely out as depth he is being chased by a terrifying man-baby clown played by Mark Hamill who is amazing as usual. We are then introduced to the new mayor of Crystal Cove. Mayor Nettles is very different to Mayor Jones, she is much more interested in looking after the town and making sure the people feel safe, as opposed to Mayor Jones' view that the monster should be used for tourism. Then, a mysterious masked figure prompts Nettles to find Mystery Incorporated because they are the only ones who can save the town. There are no opening titles which says a lot, the gang is disbanded so the very fabric of the show is broken. This metatextuality is not only very clever but foreshadows some stuff to come later on. Meanwhile Scooby has been locked away in solitary confinement on a farm. His devotion to his friends and stopping Pericles is such that he will do anything to escape, he makes another attempt to leave and is picked up by Nettles who gives him all the information she has on the gang. Scooby sets up to find them. While on parade Shaggy is interrupted by a tank smashing through the wall. Scooby drives Shaggy out of the base and off in search of Fred. Fred has been searching door to door for his parents and has a dreadful beard, it complements Shaggy's buzz cut and once again marks a visible change, these are not the characters you used to know they have been changed by the experiences of 1.26. Fred agrees to come back and solve the mystery of the evil clown but promises to return to the search for Brad and Judy once they're done. The gang are rejoined by Velma and go to pick up Daphne. But Daphne is now in a relationship with Baylor Hotner, Taylor Lautner, of the Dusk movie franchise, Twilight to you and I, this continuity within the universe is unnecessary but very much appreciated. It also shows that there have been consequences after their breakup. Not like the fake out in series 1, this time the gang might struggle to reform. After another attempt to convince Daphne to come back Fred decides she will eventually return when they need her and sets a trap for the clown. But it fails as Daphne never shows up, not only does this leave Fred very upset but it also means the clown has escaped. It shows how vital each member of the gang is and that they are all required to solve mysteries. The ending plays with the typical formula and doesn't make last season's cliffhanger into a pointless spectacle it will instead be resolved properly and treated with the respect it deserves. The episode ends and for the first time, no one has been unmasked. The gang have failed. 2.2 The House of the Nightmare Witch In this episode we find out what Velma had been up to after the events of the season finale. It turns out she had decided to work for Mr. E, in the hope that she could find the missing pieces of planispheric disc before he could. The episode also sees the return of Linda Cardellini's hot dog water. The gang bring HDG in to replace Daphne who is still refusing to talk to any of them. Once again, the episode opens with no title sequence, emphasizing the fact that the show is different. During the course of the mystery Fred becomes suspicious of Velma, he's worried she may be lying again. 
something justified by what happened last series with Cassidy Williams. The world begins to grow in this episode. The events start to involve the whole world, something very important for setting up the final part of the overarching narrative. The overarching narrative becomes a weekly part of the story with the gang uncovering a third piece of the planispheric disc. It makes sense to change the series like this and the main narrative never distracts from each individual mystery, it's very well handled and doesn't feel drawn out at all. 2.3, The Night the Clown Cried 2, Tears of Doom. This episode concludes the mystery of the scary Mark Hamill baby. With Daphne having left, the gang had to ask Hot Dog Water to help them out. This is a significant change to the show and the titles reflect that. Daphne is replaced by HTG in the title sequence. The episode follows the gang as they track the clown to the airbase, where Fred goes full Tom Cruise and jumps onto the plane. In the end it is revealed that the clown is in fact Baylor Hotner. Once again, the series shows its hatred of Twilight, and the revelation leads Daphne to rejoin the gang. Personally, I think this is a little weak, Daphne had been shown to be a strong independent character and this rips that to shreds, she falls back into Fred's arms because the story needs her too, there is an argument to be made that she wasn't really interested in Hotner, but even so the speed of her turnaround is a little fake. Okay, so I saw this series a while ago and it's taken me so long to do this review I can't quite remember when some of the key events happen, so. Fred's parents come back, they are really weird. Their original members of Mystery Incorporated Brad Chili's and Judy Reeves, they look completely different to the way they did in the flashbacks last season but they kinda mirror an older Fred and Daphne. They also have a dog who Scooby starts hitting on, she can't talk. Yet. 2.4, Web of the Dreamweaver. This episode parodies films like Labyrinth, the villain looks exactly like Bowie did, and Nightmare on Elm Street. The explanation of how the culprit committed his crimes is utterly nonsensical and brings the episode down. But there is some great development for Sheriff Stone as we learn more about his childhood. This is probably the worst one so far as it's just a little too ridiculous. 2.5 The Hodag of Horror is an episode about ancient Spanish cheese which happens to contain the fourth piece of the planispheric disc. The main villain turns out to be using a monkey to steal the cheese for himself. It's a super weird premise which serves no purpose other than to facilitate the finding of the disc piece. I don't like it because unlike most of the other episodes the mystery seems to have been secondary to the overarching plot. It feels so shoehorned in. 2.6, Art of Darkness features a parody of artist Andy Warhol, Randy Warsaw, and a Transformer. Plus, a cameo from some Velvet Underground types. It's a really weird episode but it does allow Daphne to flourish when the rest of the gang become part of Randy's art piece. She ends up solving the case herself. It had some neat concepts but was passable at best. Enjoyable but nothing to write home about. 2.7 The Gathering Gloom successfully dissects the classic mystery trope that it's never the most obvious or most evil-looking subject. The episode feeds you one narrative while hiding another in plain sight. Shaggy, Fred and Daphne follow clues to solve a typical mystery while Velma and Scooby team up with the sheriff and catch the culprit who turns out to be the obvious suspect all along. It's such a good idea to misdirection the viewer in this way and ask them to re-evaluate the way they look at these mysteries in the future. It also gives Daphne a chocolate addiction for some reason. Another thing that happens is that Pericles and Mr. E team up again after a flashback to how they first met. This is useful as it establishes their relationship, but it also makes it clear that talking animals are a regular thing in this universe, without explaining why. 2.8 Night on Haunted Mountain. Has references to Castaway and the Hills Have Eyes. But is otherwise pretty plot-focused. The gang are called to the mountain overlooking the town where they find an old ship buried in the rock. This is the ship which belonged to the original Spanish settlers when they came to America. 
They brought with them a mysterious sarcophagus which now sits beneath Crystal Cove. It contains the treasure and the planispheric disc is the only thing which shows its location. Regular shenanigans happen and the gang solve a mystery. Then as they are leaving the real-life ghost of a conquistador whispers the word Nibiru to the audience and the credits roll. WTF. This leaves me with so many questions, it confirms the existence of actual ghosts finally explaining why no one ever just presumes it's a man in a mask. And is also really clever because if you do your homework and find out what Nibiru means you are a few steps ahead of the other characters. I'm not going to tell you yet, but if you really want you could Google it. Or just wait like three more episodes for it to be revealed to the gang. 2.9 Grim Judgment is one of my personal favorite episodes, not because of the plot but because of the random reference to the TV show Heart to Heart. Fred asks his parents to help him out with a trap cause Daphne is in danger so his parents tell him that they are so good at traps they had a TV show made about them, sternum to sternum. Then there is a shot-for-shot remake of the opening titles for Heart to Heart featuring Brad and Judy. It's so utterly out of place in a kid's show as no one watching it would get it, and that makes it even funnier. A relationship also starts to blossom between Mayor Nettles and the Sheriff. The logical continuation of the previous relationship Stone had with the Mayor. There was some clear romantic tension. This episode also forced me to once again question the logic of the monster costumes. The height of the creature is never the same as the culprit. Do they all wear stilts? I need to know goddammit. 2.10 Night Terror sees the return of the family featured all the way back in 1.2, which is not only nice for continuity but it reminds you to go back and look again at that episode as there are clues within it which will be required later on, It's this interconnectivity and dedication to continuity that sets the show apart from other Scooby-Doo media and it is above and beyond what is required. The episode itself sees the gang visit the local library which hardly anyone knew about, probably because it's on top a huge snowy mountain, the inside has been ripped straight from The Shining. While inside the gang learn of a curious pattern which is intrinsically linked to the planispheric disc. For centuries groups of four people and an animal mascot have been drawn to the disc, a group of monks and their donkey, steampunk adventurers who own a mystery train and an orangutan, four cowgirls and a bull, four Zoroesque teens and a talking skunk and many more besides. This is not only a pretty funny idea but builds on the similarities and tropes found in Scooby-Doo, it may also be a dig at the number of Scooby clones released in the wake of his success, it is a way of celebrating Scooby's history and his future and links every era of Hanna-Barbera together. But we'll talk more about that at the end. These other mystery gangs also expand the threat that the planispheric disc holds as it has the power to create groups like Mystery Incorporated across the world and throughout history. The episode is one of very few to feature a somewhat real monster. It turns out that much of what transpired in the episode was caused by Magic Dreamwood. Although this seems a little far-fetched it is by no means the weirdest the show gets and acts as a way to ease the audience and the gang into accepting the idea that sometimes the threat isn't just a man in a mask, It also introduces this idea to the audience in a way that they will accept, unlike the live-action movies which throw you in at the deep end. Although the mystery is lackluster the episode achieves an awful lot in 20 minutes that will impact the story from now on so it's pretty important. 2.11, The Midnight Zone is a truly weird episode, it is revealed that the final piece of the planispheric disc was tossed into the ocean by the conquistadors and so the gang, Along with Cassidy Williams borrow a submarine from obscure HB characters Tom and Tub and investigate what's going on under the sea. Professor Pericles is also looking for the disc so sends some evil Nazi robots down to the bottom of the ocean to steal it. During a confrontation Pericles steals the disc and Cassidy sacrifices herself to save the gang. This death really ups the stakes as Cassidy has been a major character and her sacrifice not only makes Pericles look worse but changes everything about the show going forward. 
It becomes really dark from now on. 2.12, Scare Bear is a bad episode, the mystery is terrible the setup is awful and the reveal is dull. It is shown that Scare Bear is just a normal bear who got mutated because Destroido are bad. We know they are bad, we've seen it so many times, it's not shocking it's just boring now. Uck, I hated it. 2.13 Wrath of the Krampus features a great ocean-style switcheroo wherein it is revealed that the gang orchestrated the whole mystery to distract Pericles and steal the remaining disc pieces. The episode ends with Fred leaving his parents behind and the gang taking Brad and Judy's dog Nova for plot-related reasons which will become apparent soon. There are some inconsistencies within the switcheroo that bugged me but I can overlook them because of the cameos. We live in an age now where nostalgia is being weaponized and I think this show knows exactly how to do it. It rewards you with appearances from classic HB characters and then also features recurring characters from within the show itself. This episode brings back all the unmasked villains of S1 and 2 as the gang enlists them to enact their plan. Even Charlie the robot makes an appearance, after being teased right the way back in 1.1. Once again it asks you to remember that this is a world populated by real people not one and done villains which is so important for world building, continuity and the finale. 2.14 Heart of Evil features many Johnny Quest references and proves that Blue Falcon can exist alongside Scooby-Doo without drastically changing the genre. I'm looking at you here Scoop. But while this episode does feature many of the same tropes as a usual episode it sacrifices a standard plot for a more Batman-like mystery fails as there is no way it could have been guessed. This is such a shame especially because the gang are integrated so well into the central plot. An enjoyable episode but one that doesn't quite fit next to the others, and is nowhere near as good as 1.14. 2.15 Theater of Doom is an episode which does a plethora of things very successfully, it is a on the surface an episode which brings back fan-favorite Vincent Van Gogh for a light and fluffy episode set in the theater, but it is the subject of the play being performed that is truly interesting, the writers use the play as an exposition dump to explain the origins of Crystal Cove and also of the Fraternitas Mysterium a group of mystery-solving monks and their talking donkey. By intertwining the exposition amongst the plot, the young audience learns key information without even expecting it. And to top it all off there is a conclusion to a joke set up early in series 1 involving side character George Avocados, this is such a clever use of the rule of 3 and one I don't want to spoil here as it is worth taking a look at for yourself. 2.16, Aliens Among Us is an episode I don't particularly enjoy, it certainly has things going for it. I enjoy its jabs at conspiracy nuts but it is a poorly laid out mystery as Velma discovers an answer at the same time we do. The plot sees Sheriff Stone haunted by the possible memory he may have been abducted by aliens as a child. It builds on the events of 2.10 which created a question amongst the audience and inside Velma's mind as to whether these creatures might actually be real. It means that instead of automatically disbelieving the idea of real aliens Velma takes them somewhat seriously, in a lesser show this would be given no thought Velma's character would shift with no reason but this show knows it needs to build the idea of real monsters and make its audience believe in the easiest way to do that is use the calculating and logical Velma, if she believes that the audience will too. 2.17 The Horrible Herd opens with my favorite quote from the whole show, either your sister's turned up or that's the ugliest cow I've ever seen. This is a line that most definitely went over my head when I saw the show in 2013 but I really enjoyed it now. The episode continues to up the stakes with another character death, Nova goes out in much the same way as Mufasa. We don't know Nova very well but she clearly knows Scooby and her death serves to motivate him as he has very few other connections other than Shaggy. I think it could have been handled better, I would have liked to see more of the dynamic between the dogs but it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Once again, these monsters are real, Pericles has created a herd of demonic cows in the Destruido labs. 
The episode ends with the destruction of the town hall, a building I haven't mentioned much but one that has been a prominent feature of the show, a solid dependable image in the background of shots and its destruction is not only a show of power for the villain but explains the ramifications of the overarching story, it will affect the world not just the gang. 2.18, Dance of the Undead is another great musical episode, the Hex Girls are back in their original outfits and the homages to album covers are abundant, from madness to parallel lines. The songs are top-notch and the episode ends with a battle of the bands reminiscent of Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I love the idea of a band faking their own deaths to allow them to write the perfect song. The Scott-tastics are an enjoyably stupid set of zombies and this episode really acts a breath of fresh air after the dark tone of the previous few episodes. As an audience we are able to relax and the tension eases. The episode ends with a lovely piece of musical continuity. The gang asks the Hex Girls to help them decode the planispheric disc as it features musical notes along the edge, when decoded the notes are those of the theme, we as an audience have come to associate with mystery, Mr. E has been using it as his own theme and it's appeared within the show itself, acting as a password multiple times and E has even been seen to play it on the guitar. It's also a core part of the opening title theme. Now we come to understand it is the Nibiru theme the fact that this musical synergy can be charted right back to the start of the series is truly incredible and shows just how well planned this story was from start to finish. It foreshadows a lot to come and becomes something that links characters across time. Once again, the music in this series proves to be one of the best parts. Oh, and Velma's arc of accepting the unexplainable is furthered here as the Scott-tastics and the Hex Girls both have access to a hitherto unimagined world of music magic something Velma has to accept because there simply isn't time to object. It's small but it advances this character arc and it's great that so many strands of narrative can be woven together successfully. 2.19, The Devouring sees the return of Rick Spartan as the gang try to stop an evil gluten monster. The episode has little to no relation to the plot and to be honest has a pretty boring mystery at the heart of it. 2.20 Stand in Deliver features a single good joke revolving around the family who appear to be one semi-permanent vacation. Their car is stopped by a highwayman and the wife becomes infatuated by him, so much so that she decides to leave her husband for him. A tad extreme, but given the danger he's gotten them into over the series it is at least somewhat justified. The main question this episode raises for a British viewer is what is up with the sexualization of the English by the writers, have they been to Kent? The episode does do one thing for the plot of the series, Nova returns, possessed this time by who knows what and explains that centuries ago interdimensional beings came to Earth and inhabited the bodies of animals. Scooby is a descendant of these beings and so is able to talk. It also explains why all the other mystery-solving gangs had talking animals too. I like this explanation, it ties into the lore of this show in an interesting way, it doesn't make Scooby into a god the explanation doesn't reconcile the character it just explains something we've been happy to ignore. Plus it makes sense it's not convoluted or brought up again it serves a plot purpose as it shows how much of an impact the beings have had on us as a species. It's smart writing and great fan service, plus if you don't like it, you can ignore it. 2.21, The Man in the Mirror is a really well executed high concept story, which plays out in two different time periods at once, it keeps you guessing right till the end and tells a very different mystery story to the one we've come to know. Fred is knocked out and finds himself in a world where the Nibiru, end of the world, event has happened. Everyone is dead, except Daphne who is now really old. Meanwhile the rest of the gang meet up with a Fred who does all the same things Fred usually does but under the surface is really a completely different character. It turns out old Daphne is in fact Judy Reeves and weird Fred is Brad Chili's. They've had plastic surgery to become their new identities, they want Fred to reveal the location of the planispheric disc. 
On paper this idea sounds stupid but using the old movie set in town Brad and Judy actually managed to trick Fred and the gang. This episode shows just how terrible Fred's parents really are and makes us understand that really Mayor Jones was a good father. The episode is a Fred character study and it's really clever about it. Fake Fred is not much different from the Fred you might have seen in Scooby-Doo Where Are You? But Fred has changed a lot over the course of this series and the audience are able to see clearly how much he has changed when presented with what he used to be. The show uses the character development Fred has had as a vital clue for the audience to pick up on if they want to solve the mystery. Throughout the episode we revisit all the locations and townsfolk we've seen since series 1 subtly reminding us of who they are and what they do. This is a masterclass in writing, it requires you to use an intimate knowledge of pop culture icons like Fred to solve a mystery that is less about evil monsters and more about the evil that lurks within dull character writing. We also learn that deep underneath Crystal Cove is a sarcophagus brought there by the Conquistadors. Because the sarcophagus is made of crystal it is the treasure everyone has wanted for ages, only it turns out that inside the sarcophagus is an evil entity who has been manipulating groups of four humans and an animal to break it free for centuries. Something that will have an impact on the gang when they learn this information next episode. And at this very moment is controlling Professor Pericles into doing his bidding. 2.22 Nightmare in Red goes full-on sci-fi fantasy, the whole episode is a 20-minute homage to Twin Peaks, a show that no one in the intended audience should have seen. And yet it still holds up as its own piece of television despite all that. Due to some weird dream Scooby has been having the gang visit a professor of dream science for help. He sends them into the dreamscape, while there they leave a lot more about the history of the evil entity, how a group of Mayan adventurers tried to destroy the sarcophagus with an artifact known simply as the heart of the jaguar. Shenanigans ensue and the gang make it out, just about. There are some truly beautiful character moments in this show and one of my favorites comes in this episode. Velma, being the logical person she is, struggles to understand how this fantasy stuff can be real, it doesn't fit her worldview and she has a breakdown about it. Instead of just moving on show takes the time to reassure Velma and the audience that everything is going to be okay, the gang will tackle this in much the same way they always do, they'll use the skills learned over the course of nearly 52 episodes to stop this evil entity. It's such a genius moment because the writers have an intimate knowledge of Scooby-Doo and its fans, they understand that people need to be eased in slowly and this is the perfect way to end Velma's arc of self-discovery throughout the latter half of the series. The final shot calls back to classic Scooby as the house the gang leave is the one from the original 1969 opening as if to say, it's okay we won't stray too far from the roots of the show, they're always there, always remembered. 2.23, Dark Knight of the Hunters is a 22-minute Indiana Jones spoof, complete with map travel. The gang travel to South America to retrieve the heart of the Jaguar. You would think this might be an opportunity to use Rick Spartan again, but instead another new character is introduced. It is necessary to keep the pretense of mystery going but I would have preferred a further exploration of Spartan as he's a pretty good character, it also means his return a few episodes prior seem redundant. This one serves one purpose and it does that well, there was just a lot of missed opportunity. The series ends with a three-part finale, Gates of Gloom, Through the Curtain and Come Undone. Because they all tell one story, I'm gonna tackle them together, get ready. Before the finale begins the show rounds out all the character development it's been working on across the run. Fred embraces his love for Daphne and Velma accepts the unexplainable, again. Also, Sheriff Stone completes a really well-rounded plotline about accepting a new mayor. After the events of 1.26 he was left unable to trust anyone in a position to authority over him. This series introduced us to Mayor Nettles a badass Air Force pilot who the sheriff eventually decides to profess his love for. 
The plotline has been happening in the background for the whole of the series and was never really worth mentioning but it just shows how much the writers care about even their secondary characters. The gang return from their trip to South America to find the whole town has been kidnapped by Pericles and his army of Nazi robots, they are being forced to dig under Crystal Cove to find the evil entity, after an action-packed second half the gang lead a mutiny and allow the town's folk to escape, we see fan favorites like Skipper Shelton leading a hand and it's so nice to see that the world feels truly populated, the townsfolk aren't a nameless whore they are a group we have come to know and love. In the end though the gang are unable to stop Pericles opening a doorway to the cursed treasure and have to follow him into a new dimension. Once through the doorway a visually stunning world of endlessly imaginable possibility is seen. The gang traverse four different worlds each representing an element. Pericles catches up to them as they cross a bridge between two floating islands, he is hot dog water hostage and threatens the gang if they don't help him. The gang distract him and manage to get a head start. Leaving HDW behind as a distraction, it is made very clear that she doesn't survive. After crossing the earth, water and fire dimensions the gang reach the sarcophagus of the evil entity. He explains that they are the last in a long line of five people he has brought together to save him, that their friendships mean nothing and he controlled them from the start. All seems lost until Daphne uses the power of character development to declare that her love for Fred and the bond, she shares with each of the others is most definitely real, even if they had been brought together on purpose their friendships are something that cannot be faked, a fact exemplified by looking at the old mystery incorporated who were brought together in much the same way and have come to hate each other. The show uses its antagonists as a mirror image of the protagonists, only, unlike a Marvel movie they are well-rounded characters not just color-swapped versions. It is at this point that Pericles appears and releases the entity from its sarcophagus. The final episode opens with the obligatory destruction of the primary antagonist, Pericles, by the new one, evil entity, within seconds we know everything is over. The gang can only run from his power, in a scene remarkable similar to one in Shang-Chi the evil entity releases a swarm of minions who bring the townsfolk to the entity so he can consume them, we watch a side character after side character is devoured. And soon the whole town is gone. The gang try to stop the entity with the heart of the jaguar but they learn that power is not contained within the gemstone but within the gang themselves. And so, with the power of friendship the day is saved, the entity is returned to his coffin. The show does something quite incredible for a kid's program, for a while at least we believe that maybe only the gang have survived, but then the screen goes white and the gang wake up in a perfectly repaired version of Crystal Cove, everyone is back. The sheriff and Nettles are married, something they deserved after they died in each other's arms earlier, but the gang are confused and begin to investigate. They find that everything is perfect, each are accepted by their parents for their individuality. Pericles and Mr. E never went evil and Mayor Jones was never evil, he's just the PE teacher now? Velma and Hot Dog Water become the first same-sex couple in Scooby-Doo Media a fact I really enjoy, for once the diversity is not just shoehorned in for the sake of it. Upon rewatch there are clues and Velma's relationship with Shaggy is a major catalcy for this. At no point does the show try to hide the fact that its central protagonists are all white and straight, Instead it fleshes out its world with a selection of diverse characters who have personality beyond their gender or ethnicity. The gang learn that the reason the world is back to normal is that after the evil entity was destroyed, he never existed meaning none of the events of the last few hundred years ever happened, it also means there aren't any mysteries to solve. But then they receive a cryptic message from a new mystery and decide to investigate. They show ends with the gang driving off into the sunset with a laugh track playing, the end titles are also different. I love this touch as it implies that maybe the audience has moved universes too, or that the entity had such wide-reaching consequences his destruction changed the fabric of the show as well as the universe. This show is near perfect, 
The ending is excellent as it has a finality and also suggests more mysteries to come. I don't want to revisit the story as it has concluded but I appreciate that I can imagine the future myself. This review has taken 26 pages of A4 in a really, really long time but I enjoyed every second of it. I tried to think of a conclusion or a thesis or something but I think I've said everything I want to say already. This show is part of the peak of children's animated content and yet is something to be enjoyed by all ages. Watch it. See you soon, hopefully.